Hello, and welcome back to the Formal Review. Today, we'll be talking about the 2020 film, Hillbilly Elegy. Now sit back, maybe grab a drink, and let's talk about this movie. What's up, everyone, and welcome back to the Formal Review. This is Season 3, Episode 39, and I thank you all for tuning in once again. Now, I know I've said before on previous episodes that's been hard for me to watch new films, especially via streaming. Now, that is mostly true. Mostly because I, again, just don't feel dedicated to watching certain films unless I have a specific reason. And this episode is going to talk about one of those films. Because I heard it had great performances by Glenn Close and Amy Adams, and I saw that Hans Zimmer composed the score for this movie so i knew i had to check it out and also having some oscar buzz given the performances i'll get into the full discussion about the movie in this episode along with my black friday slash cyber monday haul of movies that i got so stay tuned So before I get into anything, I do want to give a quick shout out to TMI Hollywood. If you don't know who they are, they're a sketch comedy show that is live from the Hudson Theater in LA and is online on Sundays. Then on the weekdays, they do a daily show. And on November 19th, they invited me on to discuss movies and the state of movie theaters during the pandemic. And I really would like to thank them for doing that. It was a lot of fun. And I also want to give a shout out to Movies Matrix for inviting me on their action movie draft earlier this month. Though I didn't go far in that competition, I still think that I had some of the better films chosen. I'm not discouraged though because I'll be back and I'll be ready to defend my movies on any other draft that I participate in with them. But seriously though, thanks for having me on. It was a blast. Also, you know I talk about this at the end, but the data shows that most people skip over that part. <laughs> so I do want to reiterate the importance of leaving reviews on your favorite podcast service because those reviews really help me grow and improve. A lot of you have talked to me offline, but I do really appreciate the reviews that already are out there. If everyone could just continue doing that or letting me know any way that you think that I could grow and make this more entertaining, feel free and I'll look at them and I'll grow as such. Anyway, so if you haven't been following me over the past month or so, I have been slowly upgrading to 4K and a lot of movies and I was doing this in anticipation of getting my Xbox Series X, which has a 4K Ultra HD Blu-ray player. Now, this was my first Black Friday with buying 4K films and I knew I would get a really good haul because every year I usually get a good haul of movies as they are at prices that are not likely to sink to during the majority of the year. I got all my movies for about four and a half dollars each. All things considered of selling the Blu-ray copies of the movies that I was upgrading to and also selling the digital copies of the movies. So after all of that, for about $4 as a movie to upgrade to 4K is pretty awesome. So because this was such a big haul, I do want to point out that at this point, I have 94 4K movies, 559 Blu-rays, and 134 DVDs, which is a total collection of 791 movies. So of those 94 4K films, 62 of them are true 4K. So as I talked about in a previous episode, 4K has a resolution of 3,840 by 2,160 pixels, which has an aspect ratio of 1.79 to 1. However, this is not what a lot of 
films are actually filmed in because they film digitally. In fact, the mass amount of films that have been released on Ultra HD actually have 2K resolution when they are mastered on a digital intermediate. And then they're upscaled for the disc copy. For example, Wonder Woman was filmed with 4K cameras, but it was mastered using 2K equipment. And like I said, and this is called the digital intermediate, which is then upscaled to 4K in theaters and then for watching at home. So one of the bigger questions is why do some people continue to film in 4K if 2K is the digital intermediate? Well, the main reason is that when a mo movie is filmed at a higher resolution than the end result, the image will be crisper and cleaner and more detailed than if one is shot in 2K. And so I've learned over the course of the past few months, the biggest reason why fake 4K happens is frankly time and money. Rendering in the post-production period can take months at a time for true 4K. And even if a movie is finished at 4K, it often includes as well 2K visual effects that are then upscaled to match the rest of the content. This obviously can cost a lot of money for studios do not have or they'll prefer to spend it elsewhere. Sometimes budget and time allowing films are finished with a 4K digital intermediate like Black Panther was. However, the majority of the effect heavy films go through a 2K bottleneck during post-production because of the cost. Another example of this is Avengers Endgame. It reportedly had a budget of about $350 million before marketing costs. And of that $350 million, roughly $100 million went to the visuals, including the special effects. And had this film been finished in a 4K digital intermediate instead of a 2K one, you can definitely bet that the budget would have been significantly higher. So the one obvious question you may be asking is that if all this imagery is put on 2K and all this special effects have been rendered in 2K, why not just be honest about it and release the film in 2K? Why claim that these home video releases are in 4K when they're not? Well, the reason mainly is, is that we actually don't have 2K viewing at home, at least not technically. 1080p is close, but it's still less than 2K. And frankly, most people honestly don't care about the pixel count of the image as most cannot tell the difference, especially if your television is smaller. The main difference between the two of a 1080p Blu-ray and the Ultra HD disc is the HDR or the high dynamic range, which gives a better perception of the quality of the picture. So somebody also may ask why then upgrade if that is also on streaming services? Well, there's no guarantee that you're getting it on streaming services because it's going to depend on your internet and if you're actually getting the right speeds to do that. And then also if you actually pay for that content. So sometimes you won't get HDR or even 4K if you don't pay for it. I'm not going to go into that on this episode though. So if you go back in history a little bit when it comes to filming, in the early 2000s, cinemas transitioned from a 35 millimeter film projection to digital and now that's pretty much the norm. So most films made before the early 2000s were finished photochemically and can be scanned now at 4K or higher resolution for the Ultra HD Blu-ray. So one question that I always get a lot is, is 4K even worth the upgrade if some of them aren't even real 4K? So honestly, in my experience, Blu-rays do look great on a 4K screen. So then honestly, why even upgrade at all? Well, frankly, if you have a TV that is less than 55 inches, Blu-rays will upscale nicely and still look fine. And also even on a 92 inch screen, which I have, that is still true. But I'm gonna be honest, 4K content when it's true 4K and honestly even fake 4K really 
really is amazing and you really can't experience it unless you compare the two i mean i watched aquaman a few weeks ago and compared it to the blu-ray and then also compared it forrest gump on a dvd to to it on a 4k disc and it is wildly different in both situations so really it does matter but frankly it's hard for me to say that on a podcast but frankly you have to see it for yourself because it is a significant difference if you have a 4k player or television your video no matter what the source is is going to be upscaled to the match the resolution of your screen one way or another you're going to be getting the same amount of pixels now the resolution may be awful if you're trying to do a dvd but you're still getting that same amount of pixels it just may be a little blurry or a little fuzzy at the end of the day though when it comes to spending your money on whether you go for true 4k or not it's really up to you for me i try to get as many true 4k first and then I try to move on to the fake 4K of the movies that I actually really want in the best way possible. Because at the end of the day, even if a film is filmed in 2K, I mean, if it's upscale, it's still going to look clear. It really depends on the studio and the post-production of it. Because from what I've read, I have never watched it, but the Terminator 2 has apparently had a really bad 4K mastering of the film. That's why it's still $8 pretty much the entire year round. So it's one of those things that you have to do your research on which films you want to watch in 4k so that's why it's really honestly up to you where you spend your money for me it's about what am i upgrading am i upgrading the audio am i upgrading the video is it actually an upgrade or is it just an upscale because then it's fake so i mean i've gone into that and basically that's where my priority was when it comes to just purchasing general i've gone through a lot and i do focus on the true 4k movies that i'm trying to upgrade to first and then i'll be moving on to the fake 4k as need be and then also going forward purchasing only 4k versions of the movies but not buying three or four movies a month black friday is an exception for that so i'm not going to go through my entire collection of which ones are true 4k and which ones are fake 4k but i will go into the ones that i got on black friday so in addition to the nolan films that i talked about in the last episode which are true 4k one of the biggest things of this black friday haul was finally being able to finish upgrading my star wars film this was such a great feeling because i am obviously a very big Star Wars fan and I already had the sequel trilogy and Rogue One on 4k so I really wanted to get the rest and yes that includes Solo and I was able to get that one for free but more on that in a little bit so the only fake 4k movies out of the new ones that I got were the prequel trilogy and frankly I bought those mostly because it's hard for me to have some of them on 4k and some of them not so I just bought them because Disney honestly has kept their movie prices high so the likelihood of their prices going down below this is frankly very unlikely so that's why i was just like all right i'm just gonna do it buy them because i couldn't buy them one by one because i had a box set for the prequels previously so i didn't want to buy one and then have two other ones but i then sold my copy of the prequel so i was able to get them at a good price hilariously i actually got the prequels on blu-ray at goodwill for five dollars total and then sold them for 16. i haven't watched these yet but i'm going to watch these soon because obviously the original trilogy is true 4k so i'm really excited to watch that so the other true 4k films that i got during this haul were 1917 blade runner 2049 black hawk down beetlejuice casino dunkirk full metal jacket inception requiem for a dream the shining doctor sleep superman birds of prey joker and how the grinch stole christmas yes the jim carrey one i also got the criterion collection version of 1984 this isn't a 4k blu-ray or a typical black friday deal but entire month of november criterion collection was having a 50 percent 
an off sale and Amazon had a coupon on this as well. So I was able to pick that up. It is just a normal Blu-ray, but similar to the movie Parasite, it is a new 4K digital restoration, which was supervised by the cinematographer Roger Deakins. So I'm really excited to watch this movie later this month because I plan to rewatch this movie prior to watching Wonder Woman 1984 because I think there's going to be some similar themes giving the specific year that they use in the title. So the fake 4K films that I was able to get were Shazam, Bumblebee, It Chapter 2, Us, Knives Out, the live action Aladdin, Ready Player One, Avengers Endgame, the two MCU Spider-Man films, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, and Fast and Furious Presents Hobbs and Shaw. The last three films that I was able to get during the sale was one like I talked about already was Solo, the first Avengers film, and Avengers Age of Ultron, but I was able to get these for free. How you may ask? Disney Movie Rewards. So thanks to me purchasing Disney films that I was able to build up my points and get all three for free. Solo is fine, but it's the last one I would have upgraded to after a bunch of the other films, even though it is true 4K. That and both Avengers being fake 4K with Disney usually charging $20 plus each for these to get these for free was a nice feeling. So all in all, Black Friday and Cyber Monday or the November month of sales was a success. Yeah, I was able to upgrade films and also get new films and do it by only paying about four and a half dollars each. So if there's really any specific ones you want me to review in comparison to the Blu-ray, let me know. I will be doing that as the time goes out. But if you want me to prioritize some of them, let me know. All right, all right, enough about my collection. On to the movie at hand. So let's sit back, relax, grab your drinks, and let's discuss the movie. So Hillbilly Elegy is a 2020 drama film directed by Ron Howard and was written by Vanessa Taylor based on the 2016 memoir of the same name by J.D. Vance. The film stars Glenn Close, Amy Adams, Gabriel Basso, Haley Bennett, Frida Pinto, Bo Hopkins, and Owen Astolos. It follows a Yale law student who must return to his poor family in Ohio after a family emergency. So this film was originally released in select theaters in the United States on November 11, 2020, then digitally on Netflix on November 24th. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 25% rating after 163 critic reviews with an average rating of 4.6 out of 10. The critic consensus reads, and I quote, With the form of an award season hopeful but the soul of a bland melodrama, Hillbilly Elegy strands some very fine actors in the not-so-deep South, end quote. According to Metacritic, it has a weighted average score of 39 out of 100 based on 40 critic reviews, which is generally unfavorable, but even so, I wanted to watch this because of the cast and honestly the Hans Zimmer score. Now before I go any further, I do want to give a slight spoiler warning for the film. I will do my best not to ruin the movie for you, but as always I do suggest that you go watch the film so you understand what I'm talking about. However, if you don't care about that, keep listening. In addition, I will be talking about some adult topics such as addiction, so proceed with caution. So Ron Howard has had a very interesting career. His most famous films that he directed are the fantasy film Willow, the historical docudrama Apollo 13, the Christmas comedy How the Grinch Stole Christmas, the biographical drama Beautiful Mind, the biographical sports drama Cinderella Man, the thriller Da Vinci Code and its sequels, the historical drama Frost Nixon, and Solo, a Star Wars story. For A Beautiful Mind, Howard won an Academy Award for Best Director and Academy Award for Best Picture. He was then nominated again for the same awards for Frost Nixon. So he returns with this film about J.D. Vance's real 
real-life story about him growing up with his mother and grandmother in Middletown, Ohio. The life depicted in the film is one that is typical small-town life of the Midwest or Appalachia of Kentucky. And if you don't know that area of the United States, the cinematography and Hans Zimmer score will put you there almost immediately when you click play on Netflix. As the film begins, Howard really places you in this small rural town that has good and bad things. There's something charming about it that Howard really makes you feel even if you've never been to this area of the world. The film then fast forwards the audience to meet present day JD played by Basso at Yale Law School where a phone call from his sister played by Bennett, she tells him that their mom played by Adams is back in the hospital after a heroin overdose. He then leaves two days before potential law school interviews back to Ohio to deal with his family. So Howard has been a fairly complacent director even if his films are not as exciting as they should be. Solo being a prime example. I personally think that that film is enjoyable and fine but it's not really a great Star Wars movie. It's not really awful in any sense. It's fine. However he does have some really great work in film such as Apollo 13. That film is exciting and absolutely thrilling even to this day. I went into this film earlier this year on season 3 episode 8 and this film has even inspired his daughter via his re-entry scene which is directly recreated on her newest episode in season 2 of The Mandalorian. Anyway, Hillbilly Elegy is really no exception to Ron Howard's work. His direction kind of keeps the film moving and there aren't really too many dull moments over the course of the 2 hour runtime. He's able to capture the lives of these characters extremely well and he even touches on the current opioid epidemic that is hitting the areas of this country. So heroin use has increased across the United States among men and women, most age groups and all income levels. Some of the greatest increases occurred in demographic groups with historically low rates of heroin use such as women and white populations. According to the Centers for Disease Control also known as the CDC, more than 2 million Americans are addicted to opioids. The CDC reports that overdose deaths involving prescription opioids have quadrupled since 1999 and that drug overdoses now kill more people every year than gun violence or car accidents. So for those who don't know, opioids are a class of drugs that range from illegal drugs such as heroin and fentanyl to legally prescribed pain relievers such as oxycodone, codeine, and morphine. So if you go back in time to the 1990s, there was a launch party where the member of the Sackler family who owns Oxycontin maker Purdue Pharma told people there that Oxycontin would result in a prescription blizzard that would be quote unquote deep dense and white, end quote. In 1996, Purdue Pharma introduced Oxycontin in an aggressive marketing and promotion campaign. The sales from this drug grew from $48 million to $1.1 billion in the year 2000 alone. This was mainly because Purdue falsely claimed that the risk of addiction from the drug was extremely small, less than 1%. As such, many doctors prescribed the drug and by 2004, Oxycontin had become the leading drug of abuse in the United States. Individuals with better health insurance and access to physicians willing to prescribe opioids, also mostly white people, became the predominant users and abusers of this drug. So while recreational opioid use has increased in white communities, the arrest rate for sale or possession of these drugs was one quarter the rate of street drugs like heroin or cocaine. And even though the abuse of opioids far exceeded the abuse of heroin, the substance abuse and mental health services 
Administration conducts an annual national survey on drug use and health. And this is a major source of information on substance use, abuse, and dependence for those living in America 12 years and older. So their 2012 report indicated there are 3.7 times as many people using illicit prescription opioids than heroin. So white people addicted to drugs are perceived as victims in need of treatment. But people of color addicted to drugs are perceived as criminals who are then sent to jail. In communities mostly populated by African Americans or Latinxs, where drug addicts were incarcerated or treated at methadone clinics, the suburbs saw many more take-back programs for unused medications, good Samaritan laws, naloxone availability with emergency medical services, and office-based opioid maintenance programs with buprenorphine. In general, concern for opioid addiction and overdoses, the mass majority among white people, shifted the U.S. drug policy away from criminalizations to a public health concern. And in 2017, the United States Department of Health and Human Services declared the opioid addiction a public health emergency. And there is now a full-scale acknowledgement that Americans are amid this opioid epidemic, which has given rise to many more public health campaigns launched to combat this problem. So for those who don't know, the epidemic is a disease that affects a large number of people within a community, population, or region. And a pandemic is an epidemic that is spread over multiple countries or continents, such as the coronavirus that we are in currently. So the difference here is how this response has been completely opposite to the crack epidemic that hit black communities hard in the 1980s and 1990s. That response was more aggressive than the more compassionate response that we have today. They actually came out with the quote, war on drugs, which was focused on increasing law enforcement personnel and expanding prison capacity. So why this is important is because crack is a form of cocaine, which is an opioid. The powder form of cocaine is mixed with baking soda or ammonia and then heated. It is then most often vaporized and inhaled or injected. So according to the 1985 to 1986 National Narcotics Intelligence Consumers Committee report, crack was available in Los Angeles, New Orleans, Memphis, Philadelphia, New York City, Houston, San Diego, San Antonio, Seattle, Baltimore, Portland, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Cincinnati, Detroit, Chicago, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Milwaukee, St. Louis, Atlanta, Oakland, Kansas City, Miami, Newark, Boston, San Francisco, Albany, Buffalo, and Dallas-Fort Worth. And in 1985, cocaine-related hospital emergencies rose by 12% from 23,500 to 26,000. In 1986, these incidents increased 110% from 26,000 to about 55,000. Between 1984 and 1987, cocaine incidents increased to 94,000. By 1987, crack was reported to be available in the District of Columbia and in all but four states in the United States. So in 1986, U.S. Congress passed laws that created a 100 to 1 sentencing disparity for the possession or trafficking of crack when compared to the penalties for trafficking of powder cocaine, which had been widely criticized as discriminatory against minorities, mostly African Americans, who were more likely to use crack than powder cocaine. For example, persons convicted in federal court of possessions of 5 grams of crack cocaine received a minimum mandatory sentence of 5 years in federal prison. On the other hand, possessions of 500 grams of powder cocaine carries the same sentence. As such, when looked at in 2000, the number 
of incarcerated African Americans had become 26 times the amount it has been in 1983. In 2010, the Fair Sentencing Act cut the sentencing disparity to 18 to 1. According to the Department of Justice 2012 Special Report, 88% of imprisonments from crack cocaine were African American. Furthermore, the data showed that the majority of the crack imprisonments are placed in the 10 to 20 year range, while the imprisonment related to heroin use or possession range from 5 to 10 years. Now why is this? There have been numerous studies that have shown that racially biased motivations and their implications. More specifically, there was one study done at the Yale and American University that looked at the disparities between black and whites in the crimes they are charged with, drug use profiles, and the services they access. They found that relative to whites, blacks were at an economic disadvantage as demonstrated by the lower income and education levels. They also found that blacks were more likely to be charged with possession and sales while whites were more likely to be charged for illegal activity related to drug use such as stealing to support their drug habit. Yet, both reported the same degree of drug sale. The last thing they found was that blacks reported preferring marijuana to harder drugs and having less serious drug problems. However, both populations reported using drugs in the 30 days before their most recent run-in with the law. They did say their study was slightly limited due to the sample size, but it is still reasonable to suggest that the involvement of blacks in the drug trade may be at least partly due to their poverty and lack of employment opportunities. Their study showed the differences of how blacks and whites are treated within the criminal justice systems in all points of involvement. Their data shows that as long as those disparities remain, there will be a disproportionate negative consequences for blacks and other people of color. And being arrested in, in any jail time are barriers that addicts face. And if you are a person of color, your barrier is higher and harder to climb. So the Sackler family, who are, like I said, are the ones that brought in this opioid crisis, have made an estimated $13 billion off of Oxycontin sales. As of today, they have not been held criminally liable for pushing drugs that were known to be addictive despite the amount of deaths directly associated with their product. Furthermore, the Sackler family and their choices with Purdue Pharma still affect the country today. In March of 2019, the CDC put out a report that stated that we are in the third wave of this opioid epidemic. The first was the prescription pain medication such as Oxycontin, then heroin, which replaced pills when they became too expensive, and now fentanyl. So for those who don't know, fentanyl is a powerful synthetic opioid that can shut down breathing in less than a minute. And its popularity in the US began to surge around the end of 2013. Since then, there has been an exponential increase use of this drug. There has also been an increased trafficking of the drug and increased use are both fueling the spike in fentanyl deaths. For drug dealers, fentanyl is easier to produce than other opioids. Unlike poppies needed for heroin, which can be spoiled by weather or bad harvest, fentanyl's ingredients are easy to supplies because it's a synthetic combination of chemicals made in China or Mexico, according to the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration. And because fentanyl can be 50 times more powerful than heroin, smaller amounts translate to bigger profits. However, it was reported by JAMA that up to 55.4% of patients who are prescribed fentanyl painkillers were ineligible for the drug. And the issue with that is that the FDA and drug companies knew about that and did nothing. 
So you remember how I mentioned earlier on that one of the treatments for opioid addiction is naloxone? So this is a medication that is designed to rapidly reverse opioid overdose. In other words, it can restore normal respiration to somebody who's breathing who has slowed as a result of overdosing. The problem is that Teva Pharmaceuticals who had a liquid and lozenge form of fentanyl also has a liquid form of naloxone. So the same company is fueling the epidemic and getting the money off of the treatment but aren't really seeing any consequences of the tens of thousands of Americans dying from the opioid related causes. And our country doesn't really seem to care because in November of 2019, the FDA approved an even more powerful opioid, Desuvia or Sufentanil. And this pill is 10 times more stronger than fentanyl and up to a thousand times stronger than morphine. According to its makers, Desuvia is intended for use in patients who are experiencing acute pain. But approval for this drug has been highly criticized. So Dr. Rayford Brown, who is the chair of the FDA's Anesthetic and Analgesic Drug Products Committee, urged the FDA not to approve this drug. He called the product, and I quote, an extremely divertible drug, end quote. And he predicted that diversion, abuse, and death would be observed, quote, within the within the first months of the drug's presence on the market, end quote. There have been studies that show that once powerful opioids receive FDA approval, there's been very little systematic control over the distribution and abuse of those medications, no matter the drug sponsor's claim of regulation. And these are very valid concerns. However, the medical benefits of the drug cannot be overlooked as medications continue to pass screenings and become more ready available. Education regarding the dangers of the abuse is needed to prevent addiction because most health professionals agree that addicts are more successful when treated in therapeutic environments and that incarceration does little to reduce future drug use. So the strategies that have emerged to reduce the overdose risk in suburbs were not available to people of color during the crack epidemic and frankly they aren't even as available even today. Yes there are some attempts but there's still a long way to go to re-establish addiction as a medical issue and not as a criminal issue and this is what needs to be done to reduce the stigma of addiction that has historically carried because addiction is a devastating disease that really doesn't care about what ethnicity you are or what gender you are or what socioeconomic group you're in. It can ruin the lives of people and families every day and it's just as tragic no matter what your ethnicity is. However, it is critical that we understand the biases that prevented these prevention methods earlier to ensure that all individuals, regardless of their ethnic or economic situation, have access to better treatment services that are effective and treat the addiction with respect. And this will promote better health outcomes and decrease stigmatization, which will then give us a stronger society in the long run. I say all this to demonstrate that the movie does capture one of the main populations of the current opioidemic well. Howard shows their lives in a very powerful way that shows the larger socioeconomic circumstances that keep them in this small town. These people are pushing through life in their own ways and really Howard has his audience feeling sympathetic toward them. Well, at least two of them. As I mentioned, one of the reasons for me watching this film was Glenn Close and Amy Adams starring in it and frankly, they were anything but disappointing. The two women give phenomenal performances acting as two points of views on JD's future. Neither woman is a saint, but they do care about his development in their own unconventional way. Of the two actors, Glenn Close definitely shines a little bit more as Mama, JD's grandmother. She becomes this character, changing her posture, movement, and almost voice 
that she's almost unrecognizable. And as you learn more about her as the film progresses, you become more sympathetic toward her. And it doesn't feel like that Close is really overacting, as most Oscar bait films would be saying they do. I think she is just really a cynical, but she's also caring grandmother. She's had a tough life, but she still wants to help her grandson do well. And I think that Glenn Close has had such an interesting career because she has not won any Academy Awards, even though she has been nominated seven times for them. And she does hold the record for most nominations without a win for a woman actor. Most recently, she had a nomination for 2017's The Wife, which she was pretty amazing in. And you can go check out season one, episode 30 for my thoughts on that film. So Amy Adams has really come a long way from playing a Purcell and Katie on The Office. A-W-E-S-O-M-E. She has not received any Academy Awards and one short of Close's seven nominations. Personally, I think her best performance is in 2009's Doubt with Meryl Streep, but she has also done well in 2011's The Fighter, 2014's American Hustle, 2016's Arrival, and Nocturnal Animals. Her performance here is similar to The Fighter, but I think it's even better. Her character has to switch from a struggling drug addict to a sweet mother to JD. I don't think she embodies the character as Close does, but she does show how great of an actor she is. The rest of the cast is very serviceable. While none of them really stand out, they all play off their characters well. As the older JD, Basso mostly shows an ability to react to everything happening around him. However, he does feel a fairly generic and Frida Pinto I think is fairly wasted as JD's law school girlfriend. I think Bennett is able to do the best that she can as his sister. However, I think the main issues outside of those two women and the relationship with JD is that the other characters feel fairly underwritten. And with the small amount of screen time and character development, they honestly are just fine. And they just do the best that they can with what they're given, which isn't much. And I do think that another issue that I found with the film is that at times it feels cliche. For example, when JD finally expresses to his girlfriend why his mother is in a hospital. Listen, let me come. I can stay with your mom and you can come back and interview. Lucia, I appreciate it, but you'd have no idea what you'd be walking into. I've been in hospitals before, J.D., when my grandmother was sick. It's not the f***ing flu, Lucia. My mom overdosed on heroin. Is that the kind of problem you want? I didn't think so. It feels so drastic for him to jump to that conclusion. We're given little to no indication that she doesn't want to interact with someone with an addict mom, but the script has to tell us she does or that she may. There are other moments like this in the movie that really can pull the audience out of the story. And especially this is issues at some really key moments. Frankly, it feels that it's really due to the writing of the characters. And for a film dependent on the characters, it really does hurt the film. I think the writing works for some of the time, but not all the time. Time. Overall, the film does have the elements that will make a good movie, and I think the cinematography is good, and Zimmer takes a step back from the industrial score for something a little bit more melodic. I think that the acting is phenomenal by the two starring actors. However, this film does feel average at the end of the day. I don't think it's a bad film and that one should really avoid watching it. And in fact, I enjoyed the characters well enough for the two hours, and my time did not feel wasted. I wouldn't avoid it if somebody wanted to watch it again, I would only recommend you watch this movie as you're doing laundry or some other chore. 
Now, what did you think of the movie? And are there any 4K movies you want me to review? Let me know. Hit me up on social media. Former review is on Facebook, Twitter, and the gram. I post many things, including trailer reactions, so go check those out. The handle is all the same. It's at the former review. Feel free to also check out BackseatDirectors.com, where I work with a big team to put out movie reviews and also editorials. Again, that's BackseatDirectors.com. Please also subscribe to the former review. We're on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. We're now on Amazon Music, iHeartRadio. Honestly, pretty much anywhere you can find a podcast, we have our content there. Also, I'm always wanting to grow and improve, so please leave a review and what you want to hear because I really do this for you all. I see the numbers and I really appreciate everyone supporting me and talking to me about movies because frankly, that's what it's all about. And for anyone who has supported me on a financial basis, thank you again. And if you want to help support on a financial basis, please go to anchor.fm forward slash the minus sign formal minus sign review and click support this podcast. And honestly, any donation is appreciated. Thank you all again for tuning in. And until next time, wear your mask, wash your hands, stay safe and take care, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the former review. Cheers. And we'll see you next time.